You're listening to the Diabetic Running Podcast, helping people run their blood sugars one workout at a time. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 9 of the Diabetic Running Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Foti. So before I introduce today's guest, I want to take a quick second to thank everyone who's reached out to me on social media, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or through the website. I actually had one lady call me while my phone number was still on Instagram. I've, I've recently taken it off because I think that maybe is a little weird, but thank you to her because that was awesome. Um, and she had an awesome message, but just once again, thank you for everyone for reaching out. It's meant a lot to me and helps spread the word of the show. So once again, guys, thank you so much. You're amazing. Keep doing what you're doing, training hard, and keep tuning in to the Diabetic Running Podcast. Today on the show, I have Amy McKinnon, who I found through Instagram, I think through the Type 1 Run channels, which is funny because she's actually a diabetic sports project or DSP athlete. A little bit of rivalry there, I think, but two organizations that are both incredible and have roughly the same goals, which is to motivate and inspire and educate everyone, including Type 1 Diabetics and non-diabetics about training and type 1. Amy is an absolutely incredible runner from Sydney, Australia, and amongst other things has qualified for Boston and has run ultra marathons. And I'll let her tell you a little bit more about her story. But uh, without further ado, here's my interview with Amy McKinnon. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's Saturday morning in Sydney. It's raining outside, but I can't complain. Yeah, so the sun's setting here. It's 5.30. I just got off oh, work. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. perfect. So, uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, where about are you based? Uh, I'm in, I'm central time zone. So you, you've you lived in New York for a while, so you know like the states yeah. pretty well, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm in Please Alabama. Yeah. Okay. Sweet On home, I wouldn't know. Alabama. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Surely you've heard I that have. song. I have, it's, and I've seen the movie a few years ago. It's, that, it's actually on all the state signs. So like when you drive into Alabama, it says Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, really? It's a little bit cheesy, but... Yeah. yeah <laughs> you probably cringe, cringe, about, cringe at it. Oh, I don't <laughs> mind. I'm from Tennessee, so I'm only here for work, so I don't... No qualms about Alabama. Okay. <laughs> no personal connection there. Yeah. Where are you? Um, I'm in Sydney, Australia. So it's everyone listening, everyone listening right now, if they ran today or if they're running tomorrow, they're probably planning on how many layers they're going to wear and how miserable they're going to be for the first mile. What is the, what's the weather like there for you? Um, the weather is... At the moment, I think it's in the 70s, um, which is actually quite cool for this time of yeah. year. Um, and so it's normally around in the 80s or 90s at summertime. So I can't be complaining when the sun's shining no, <laughs> and we're running sounds, by the beach. Sounds incredible. Well, I'll give the floor to you. I want you to be able to talk um, to us a little bit about your diagnosis and you know the beginning of Amy's experiences with type 1. Yes, not a problem. Um, so I guess I got diagnosed um, with type 1 when I was 12, which was in 2000 and my first year of high school. My story is actually not um, exciting at all, really. I was sick for about a couple of weeks. I lost quite a lot of weight, I think. My parents tell me around 20 pounds in two weeks. So for them, it was probably quite concerning. That's why they um, called the doctor. And they were trying to give me um, 
kind of like meal replacements that you give to either young children or elderly people who need to put on weight. Thankfully, I wasn't allowed a soda or Coca-Cola at that time, so I wasn't drinking that when I was thirsty. Um, then my doctor came around to my house, said go straight to the hospital, and I was there back in that day. You'd actually stay over overnight for a couple of days in hospital while they taught you everything and educated your parents. So mm-hmm. I was there, I think, for three to four days. Um And the one thing that I remember is from day one, I always did my injections myself. My parents never did them for me. The diabetes educator at the time told my parents, it's her disease, so you've really got to let her manage it. And I think my parents did a really good job of that, looking back and reflecting upon it. They never took control they let me manage everything and then when I needed help and I asked them they'd offer their support and help in the ways that they could so I think that that I think in the long run really helped me manage my diabetes totally on my own in a good way not in a I didn't have any support way but in like being independent to manage that it gives you it gives you ownership of it and if you have ownership yeah you take care care of it Yeah, I think that's exactly, and I think that's true, and I never had a rebellion stage, even in my teenage years. There's always moments where you don't want diabetes, and it's really a crappy day, but I never have friends who really struggled with coming to terms with it, and I thankfully never experienced that, and I think maybe that approach that my family took and diabetes team took helped with that a little bit. So growing up, were you always on injections? I was. I didn't go on an insulin pump until about, I'd say, six years ago now maybe. I didn't want something attached to me mentally. I couldn't get past that barrier. Um, so I was always on injections. So what's that like being a teenager growing up with you know, insulin pens or syringes and vials around with you all the time? To be honest, I think it had its advantages because it was more subtle. I could, I didn't have anything. Now I'm very comfortable with having my insulin pump on my hip and people asking me questions about my CGM on my arm. That's fine. But I think as a kid, I could keep it to myself a little bit more. I could go to the bathroom to inject. I could test my blood a little more subtly. You know, so I think for me, I was okay with that because it wasn't, very in your face and I could kind of keep that to myself around people who I didn't want to share it with. So I didn't mind it actually. And so what was your relationship with athletics growing up? Did you play sports or how did you control diabetes and and sport? I did play a little bit of sport in school and growing up, not anything um, too competitive. I did running and I did swimming. Everyone in Australia learns to swim growing up. So I was good at that. Um, I competed in like high school and a couple of like state-based level and I played tennis. And then I got to university and I didn't do a lot of exercise, if any at all. So I didn't really get back into running until about five years ago. So I'm going to back you up. You said everyone wants to swim in Australia. Is it like a, that's like the go-to hobby there? Yeah, I think you learn. Your parents put you in a pool from the day you can, you're born pretty much to learn to swim because we're surrounded, especially I guess in my location in Sydney, 
you're surrounded by beaches. You go to the beach a lot with your family. So knowing how to swim is expected. And then I think growing up, you're doing squad training. So you're, if, and I feel as a kid, if you're learning something and you're good at it, you, you want to do that. So I would always want to swim at the school events because I knew that I was good at it. So I think that's partially a motivation. That's funny because I don't think I grew up in Tennessee and it couldn't have been the opposite. I, <laughs> I could probably name 10 or 20 people that I knew growing up who couldn't swim at all. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I think, yes, location probably impacts yeah. that quite a bit. And so you said you had started running. And I, I know you ran your first marathon in 2012, but I think it said you started running down in Sydney um, around college, right? Yeah, I did. I was maybe my last year or, yeah, towards the end of finishing um, my degree, I had a friend who wanted me to do a race with him. So we st signed up to this race. It was only 14 kilometres, which I think is about eight miles, nine miles. And so we signed up, started running with him, and he was a lot faster than me at the time, so it really sucked. I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> um, and I was always trying to keep up and you're out of breath. So I started running on my own and that's when like things changed for me. I felt better, less pressure, more motivated just to go out and run at my pace at the distance that I want to run. And that's when I started, I guess, consistently getting into running. And then I did a 10-kilometer race in Sydney and the prize for that race, um, like it was a draw, was to run in the Nike Women's Half Marathon in San Francisco, and I won that. So that I get, was the next motivation to actually run consistently and train to be able to not embarrass myself at a half marathon. <laughs> yeah. So if if I could pause you right there, what is it like as an as a diabetic and who is starting out like an official training program? And maybe you didn't start an official training program, but it sounds like for once you had like a goal race or like a dream race that you were going to travel to. And how do you approach being a diabetic and starting like a new thing? You know what I mean? Running, long distance running. I think there's a few key things. So I think patience with anything, even if you're not diabetic, it's you're not going to miraculously be running 10K overnight. Um and then when you add diabetes in it and allowing your body to get used to that different type of training, even if you're a cyclist, running's different to that or you do weightlifting, like the type of exercise, you've got to allow your body to get accustomed to it. I think starting slow, taking your time, being consistent. So even if you have one bad day, don't wait four or five days to run again. Try to maybe have one day rest and then run the next day because being consistent is going to help you become fitter quicker but also help your diabetes um, and your body adjust now in terms specifically for diabetes I think being really conservative with your insulin like now I can run with my basal on a hundred percent but when I started running I'm pretty sure I had to reduce my basal below 50 percent otherwise I'd go low so I think at the beginning it's better to be a little bit on the higher side rather than having to stop a run halfway or having to eat a lot of sugar to treat a hyper when a run, which is just yeah. going to frustrate you and make you feel like I can't keep going. This isn't working. Do you think, think that you've, really become more, you've, you've become less sensitive since you've been running? 
Because um, that's kind of what it sounds like you're saying is that when you first started running, maybe you only needed you know a fraction of your normal basal rate, but now you can get by with the whole percent. Like, are you talking about think, kind of the same blood sugars through you know old Amy and new Amy for pump running? Yeah, I think my um, overall insulin has decreased dramatically. Like, less than I'm on probably fifty percent less than I was when I started running. Um, really? And how long? How long was that? Like, how long until you think you saw that difference? Um, it would have been, I would have, it was a gradual decrease. So if I, the more that I ran, the less overall insulin I needed, like my basal rate for 24 hours would be lower. I'd have to give less insulin for food. So I think it, your body gets to a level where, okay, this is the amount of insulin I need based on your training schedule. And then you don't really have to make a lot of adjustment if you consistently do the same type of training. So it originally I think people's insulin levels will drop overall and then you'll get to a, a level where your body needs that amount of insulin even with your level of training and then you need to make less adjustments once you kind of get it, get the dose in right. Yeah. And so how were you training for um, going to San Francisco? Like, did you have like a set training plan or were you just kind of swagging it? That was kind of my first official race. So I was just going <laughs> with what I felt was good at the time. I I would run consistently five days a week, different distances. At that stage, probably just all the same easy speed. I didn't really have any um, different workouts or interval training or anything like that. But it worked for me at the time. So I think starting out and not having high, high expectations on what you want to achieve coming out of like your first one or two races is also a good thing. I think that helped me. Yeah. Well, tell us about the race. Now I'm curious as to like how it went for you. It was good. It was good because Nike helped a lot. They, they flew us over there. I ran with another girl from Sydney too. We were right at the front of the start with the girls who are going to run a very fast time. Um, but the race was beautiful. It was very hilly, and I remember it being extremely foggy, so you couldn't actually see one of the hills, the top. So you'd be running up this hill, which felt forever, and you'd think, oh, I'm almost at the top, and then the fog kind of disappears, and it's yeah. like, nope, I'm still going. And you run under the Golden Gate Bridge, um, and I think I finished close to two hours, which I was pretty happy with, with no expectations of really what I wanted to to get out of the race at but I do remember I ate a donut right after the race and my yeah. sugar levels went out of control. And I don't think it was fully the donut. I think it was also the adrenaline in my system um, post-race, which I've now worked out how to manage a little bit better. But that really spikes my sugar levels when I finish running or the adrenaline in my body. Yeah. So two questions. How was your pacing and how were your blood sugars? I'm guessing, did you check or was this before you, know, you carried that um, kind of stuff along I carried it on me definitely, but I remember my first races, I wasn't big on checking and checked once. I know, yeah, so before the race, I think I, which I normally start on probably around 2, 250, somewhere between there. Um, and then maybe from what I recall, this was a few years ago in 2015. So I ate maybe some jelly beans or some glucose tablets along the way 
and then finished, I think, on around 180, 200, and then it just went up from <laughs> went up from there for a couple of hours before it came down. Yeah. When you think of blood sugar, do you think of millimoles per liter or milligrams per deciliter? We use millimoles per liter here. Yeah, I know. M, I know milligrams roughly per deciliter from when I lived over in New York. So you have, but in um, your mind, you you visualize it in millimoles per liter and convert it over to milligrams per deciliter. I do. Because they, yeah, it's kind of like a language, you know. Some people think in Spanish or English, you know, oh, and then they're constantly converting. I find I'm myself, converting. I find myself talking to people, you know, like you across the seas, and I'm like trying to convert it into. You know, other numbers, it's like 13. I When I see 13, I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. I immediately have to try and translate have it. Have to convert yeah. it. I know like 90 to 135 is roughly the range that you want to be in. Um, yeah. And then you I base it around that. I just moved <laughs> yeah. my Dexcom settings this week to, for weeks I've had it, actually since I've got it, I've had it on 80 to 180, like my low and high alarms. Oh, yeah. But I, at somewhere along the way in the past week, I got motivated it was probably my endo appointment this past week but i got motivated to like tighten the numbers a little bit you know what i mean like tighten that window so now it's 80 to 150 and i was like okay this 30 points is gonna help me just that much more and it'll i think it'll make me more stressed about my blood sugars but maybe it'll make me correct earlier if i need to you know so we'll see yeah i do have my um i don't wear a cgm but i have um I think it was recently released over in the US, the Abbott Freestyle um, flash glucose sensor, which you have to just scan the device on your arm to get, and it shows you like the past 24 hours yeah. and what Wait, your sugar so levels are. Is that not considered a CGM? They don't call it a CGM. I call it a CGM, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does the same thing. Very have, similar. Yes. Yeah. You have constant data available to you. Regardless, yes. regardless yeah. of whether or not you scan, you still have access to that later, right? Access. Yes, exactly. So my, I've been calling it a CGM my, this whole time. People probably thought I was an idiot. <laughs> that's fine. I've done the same. But I, someone corrected me the other day, so I'm a little more conscious of Who what I call you? it now. That's like a... Uh, was, so another diabetic. They're like, oh, it's not actually a CGM. Okay, it's the same thing. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. Um, but it does the same thing, but it just doesn't have alarms. But I do have my control on that really tight. And I think um, the goal of where I want my sugar levels, and I think that does help you like be a little bit more proactive and you won't wait till it gets like to 180 before it's, you make yeah. a correction. So yeah. do you have to carry the sensor around with you? Like the, the I do. Thing? And is yeah, that like heavy? Like I've never pocket. held it. And so like how big is no, it? No, it's it really, or? really tiny. It's really light. It's quarter of a phone like the size of an iphone it's really small and so you can you just pop it, it in your pocket and you don't even see yeah i can i can hold it when i'm running or i can put it in my pocket or my waist belt i have a hard time holding things when i run but i'm a i'm a sweaty guy so like i'll have like sweaty palms um, the 10 mile. you just need to wear <clears throat> pardon me you just need to wear a waist belt and you I can do. just pop it yeah. in there i have like a flip belt that i've been using yeah they're good very handy yeah, and so you said you finished at two. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you said you finished at like two hundred and around two hours. That's incredible for someone who doesn't. Like I finished uh, a half recently, and I've been like training for it and was like super serious about my goal. And here you are, you just go out and just run it. I just don't think I. Looking back, 
like now I have like race strategies and I know what I want to do before the race and I know my fueling strategy during the race. But back then I think I probably in a good way just innocently looked at the race as like, okay, I've just got to get through 13 miles or 21 kilometers. Like just get from the beginning to the end and just hope for no hypos. I think that's was my mentality going into the race. I didn't really have any expectations or know what to expect or think like, oh, I need a diabetes management plan. Like I want to keep my sugar levels in this range. I was like, okay, I don't want them to be too high, but at the same time I don't want to go low. And I think that was my main focus during the race, just getting to the finish, minimal hypos, and just trying to enjoy the view along the way. How do you think that translates over to the rest of your life? Like, I think as runners, we get really in tune with our bodies, you know, and then as diabetics, we also have to be super in tune with ourselves. How do you think that translates outside of running back into your diabetes just on its own? I think it has its pros and cons. Like if I, I like to be in control of my diabetes and I am most of the time. So when I'm not in control or something is unexplainable, like say I have a high sugar level and I feel like unwell, I have a headache and I'm thirsty and I correct and it doesn't come down and then I'm like, okay, I need to go for a walk. I need to do something immediately and it frustrates me. And then if you're in a situation where maybe that's not really an option straight away, then I get even more frustrated and it sometimes can then be a negative thing, whereas other times I feel Knowing that, so knowing like that I'm going low, knowing that I'm going high, knowing that kind of before it gets too bad. Like I know people who can be 350 and they wouldn't know they're 350 until they test, whereas if I'm above 180, I can start to tell that I'm going higher without having like the reading in front of me. So I think that definitely is a positive and really knowing what my levels are through intuition I'll still test. I won't just correct or something without doing that. I've made that mistake before. But that really helps, I think, in knowing that, especially when you're running, is such an advantage because you can listen to your body and then check just to make sure, but then you can quickly make a decision rather than previously done going through a whole race feeling crappy 90% 90% of the time and not actually doing anything about it till you finish. It's funny. You mentioned some people can't tell when they're high, but what is, what is your go-to symptom? You said you can always tell if you're above 180. What's your go-to I'm high symptom? Headache and just like my mouth gets a little bit of a metallic taste in it. I think yeah. That's, yeah. So mine, and maybe you can relate to this. I don't, I don't get headaches, but my head starts to feel full. Like my face, my face feels flush and my head just feels like, it's going to pop. Yeah, maybe that's the feeling. It's not really a headache because I rarely, I would say like if someone said, how often do you get a headache? I'd say almost never. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, maybe it is that feeling, a little bit of like feels like your head's maybe getting a bit swollen or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's hard to describe. Like to me, I would just say headache because that's the most relatable thing that I think it's to put into terms. But it's yeah. sometimes hard for to us, explain Yeah, for type ones, it's like way more specific, you know. Yes. That's funny. And so what was the next race? Um, after San Francisco. So yeah. I did a couple a couple of half marathons. Um, so after San Francisco, I moved or I just moved to New York prior to the race in 2015. So after that, I 
did a few races in New York. I did the Brooklyn half. I did the New York City half. And they were all leading up to the New York Marathon, which was my first marathon. That's incredible. And I had meant to ask you this earlier, but at the time, were you the only diabetic runner that you knew or did you have kind of a support group? Nowadays, people can go on and be inspired by Type 1 Run or Beyond Type Run and just kind of have access to other content and people that are kind of doing the same things that they're doing. But, you know, here you are, 2012, 2011, running on your own. How was that? And like, who did you reach out to in order to kind of support you in all this? I feel like I was the only person who I knew at the very beginning who had type one and who was running long distance. I did start following Robin um, Arzon, who lives in New York City as well. She's like a spin class trainer and she runs marathons and ultra marathons. And I think she was really the first person I found through social media who I was like, wow, she's amazing. If she can do it, I can do it. Like that kind of really aspirational, like uh, I saw her. I got a bit more onto so doing a bit of research into type one athletes. There are a few others who I found, like Stephen England, who also lives in New York, and he um, runs ridiculous, like two hundred mile races and a very fast marathon. Yeah, and then through Steven. him, I met other people. So, yeah. yeah, I interviewed Stephen, I think, a month ago. Oh, cool! That's yeah, exciting. Stephen's incredible. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. I met him in Boston last year as well. Yeah, and hashtag Robin our zone. I'm going to tag her in this episode. She was recently on an ep- uh, episode of Man Bun Run, which I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he puts on I like haven't. a general. He puts on like a general podcast about running, and he brings on some of the best best athletes in the world. Um, and I think Robin was on two weeks ago. And so if you love Robin, okay. which I, I'm a big fan, you got to go listen to that episode. It's on you know every major podcast platform. But yeah, he puts on okay. an incredible podcast, and she talked a little bit about kind of some of the things that we've talked about so far of like, you know, how to, you know, tackle diabetes and running and, you know, changing some of the the stigmas around diabetes and running and just kind of the overall mentality of it. So worth a listen. Awesome. I will give it a listen. Yeah. And to, to plug, uh, to plug him cause he plugged me. So I owe him a, a plug back. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'll let you do that. And so I'm, I need to paint the picture for everyone that you're not, just like the everyday slow runner like me here you are running and qualifying for Boston. So talk a little bit about that progression going. I mean, not only, you know, being an incredible type one athlete, but transitioning from someone who's just kind of jogging and just not even paying attention to pace runs a two hour half, but then gets to the point where now you're, you know, you're qualifying for Boston. Two hours. Yeah. That (laughs) seems a little (laughs) slow for me now. I'd be, embarrassed at that time but it's all relative there's a lot of people with type 1 2 who run a lot faster than me and I look at them and I'm like how are you running that incredible pace um so for me I remember um a work colleague who was also a runner leading up to New York um marathon said to me I reckon you can Boston qualify in New York I was like um this is my first marathon I don't know what you're thinking you're a little crazy but Okay, I it's totally ignored her. Then in the New York Marathon, I was running at a reasonable pace and I thought, and the qualifying time for my age group was a 3.35. 
And then I got, and the race was going great. I was testing my blood a few times through finger pricks. I didn't have a CGM at the time. They were in range. I think I had one slightly low sugar level, but everything was great. And then I got to, I think, mile 22, and I was so close, and I, but I knew that I couldn't get it, and I finished in like a 340, which obviously was five minutes yeah. off. And I was like telling myself, like, if I just like – listen to her and maybe push myself a little bit more, I could have qualified. Um, but it gave me hope that I could actually one day qualify for Boston. So I think that yeah. was a motivator were you to running run alone? another like, marathon. Were you, were you pacing and running on your own? I or? was alone, yeah, the whole time I was running on my own. I just did my own thing. Didn't want the pressure of a pacer. And now I won't even use pacers in marathons because the pressure of trying to keep up or run with them for me, it doesn't work. I know it works for a lot of people, but I just can't do it. I tried um, in the most – I've done the Sydney Marathon twice where that's the two times I qualified for Boston. Um, and I tried in the last Sydney Marathon to keep with the pace of – to finish in a 3.15, which I didn't finish just under um, over that. But it was so much pressure. I was like, this is stressing me out, and I let the pace obviously go ahead because I couldn't keep pace. Um, yeah. so well, it's like, I don't think that's too, gonna so the work listeners don't have to calculate. I mean, we're talking like eight, 12 miles, you know, for the whole time. And here you are. I mean, you, the race you just did, you're talking like what? Eight twenties nonstop for 26.2. That's amazing. Um, seven. No, it was like a seven 20 mile. Seven Seven thirty. Like my pace. If I was to on, oh no, if I was to run a three fifteen, my pace would have to be a seven thirty mile. Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was judging it off a of three thirty five. Oh okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Three thirty five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, is that yeah, your goal? Is that your goal pace three fifteen? Um yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to run a three hours, but in my head, mentally, like the pain seems a bit too much. But I, yeah, a three fifteen, and I ran a three twenty three in Sydney. Holy which was God. my fastest, so I getting closer to the three fifteen one day. That's I've got to choose the right race. And so, where was your PR? Where was that at? That was at Sydney. So I did. I've done New York, then I did Sydney in two thousand and sixteen. Um, then I did the Melbourne Marathon as well, which is another city here in Australia. Then I ran Boston, and then when I did Sydney again last year in september that was my 323 yeah so what's it like running boston i've heard a lot of interviews and people talk about the atmosphere and the environment and just the roar of the the city for the day but what's that like for you it was incredible one of the exactly like you just described it like the whole city literally shows up um, for the race and they're there to cheer you on from the beginning all the way through to the end. Um, similar to New York, but in Boston, I feel like there's more passion. People paint their houses the colors of the Boston Marathon. Like, Is it easier <laughs> to run faster extreme. on that day? Like let's say if you had to run an unsupported 26.2 by yourself, is it significantly harder than running the streets of Boston with people staring at you the whole time? No, I like that. I In Sydney, marathon races are not as popular and I guess we don't have the population as well. Yeah. So you, there's a lot of times where it's just you and you're just running with the other runners out there. And For me, they're the hardest to keep my pace because I don't have anyone yelling at me. I actually enjoy having those people cheer you on and kind of giving you that encouragement. So I, 
enjoy that atmosphere a lot better and I find that a lot more motivating than just being out there feeling like you're on your own for most yeah. of the race. Oh, yeah, of course. And so, and so well, now I'm just looking through all your races and I'm kind of in awe. But, and so it says you've, you've got a 60K under your belt as well. Talk a little bit about, I mean, did you just decide, oh, I'm going to run an ultra marathon now? Type 1 diabetes, you know, screw you. I can do whatever I want. Um, um, it was always in my mind, and I had planned to run a 50K after Boston, but I was injured prior to Boston, so I just wasn't at the fitness level to do that. Um, so then I delayed it essentially until um, later last year, and I had a friend who was running – at the same event but was running the marathon distance and he said to me why don't you just come for the weekend you do the 60k and I'll do the marathon and I was a little bit hesitant at first um and then I was like you know what I'm just gonna do it and my boyfriend runs ultras as well so he pushed me in that direction to give it a go to do it the course wasn't too challenging so I thought okay I'm just gonna give it a go and see how I see what happens yeah. And so what is like, what's diabetes management like for you over the course of 60 K? I mean, we're talking yeah, 30 something miles. Yes. Um, I find it actually, well, I found this experience less stressful than a marathon in a marathon. You have the pressure of trying to get a fast time, get a PR, manage your sugar levels while like really not stopping at all to mm. like eat or drink, eating on the go, grabbing water and continuing to run where in a ultra marathon um, you've got to pace yourself and you've got to be smart so you can't go out hard from the start or you're going to be off the course halfway through because you're going to be exhausted. So I yeah. think I paced myself well, really well, and I ran with other people too, which helped because you're in the middle of nowhere and there's no one on the sidelines cheering you. So I ran with a couple of guys who were running the same pace and having other company also helped you to not really like notice how tired you are until you're getting closer to the end. And I think my diabetes management on that day, I couldn't have asked for anything better. I was able to like refuel give really small micro boluses of insulin, like half a unit, and I'd eat half a cliff bar. And my sugar level, they don't think, went above like 140 and they didn't go below 90 and it was just like almost magical. Yeah, like, I like couldn't have asked day. for a better day. Yeah, exactly. That's a, and That's a good day for someone who's not running an ultra marathon, let alone, you know, just trudging through the mountains and knocking out Yeah. Miles. How yeah. is your fueling so strategy different for a race like that as opposed to – you know, one of your near elite, you know, Boston performances? Um, I think you have, to me, I felt like I had more time in the ultra to eat, to check my sugar levels, to give my micro bolus if I was 140 and then wait 20 minutes before I ate the cliff bar. Mm -hmm. Whereas the pressure in a marathon, sometimes I struggle to refuel in a marathon for my actual body rather than based on my sugar levels because if yeah. my sugar levels are at 180 during a marathon, I don't want to eat anything because I don't want to risk giving a little bit of insulin yeah. and then it crashing me because you're pushing your body to the limit. So I, a few marathons I've looked back and said, you know what, I could have refueled so much better like eating 
one gel and one cliff bar in a marathon is not acceptable. Like I need to eat, be eating more food. And for Sydney, I did that. I didn't take the risk of not eating. If I had a slightly higher sugar level and I needed a gel, I'd have the gel and give a tiny, tiny, tiny bolus. And then if I needed more food, if my sugar level was dropping, I'd have another gel, you know, so I managed it a little bit more proactively in that sense and focus more on refueling for my body rather than just focusing on my diabetes. And that, what, that yeah. helped. What fraction of your normal carb ratio are you talking about? Like, so you talk about a fraction or like a tiny amount. So if I had a gel normally, if I'm just sitting here and had a gel, I'd probably have to give two units just off the top of my head, especially because it's yeah. Just pure glucose, yeah. but I was giving 0.2, maybe 0.3. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're also yeah. hauling at a 720 pace. You know, that's incredible. And so for those performances, how are you? Are you, do you, are you using your pump or are you taking yeah. things with you? Or I Pump, and then I've made the decision now to take backup pens for after the race when my sugar level decides to rocket sky high. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, keep my pump on during the race and it's much easier obviously to give really small doses. Mm-hmm. I lay, I put my basil on a temp basil when I'm running it as fast as I can. Yeah. Um, and then I, nowadays I'll have my CGM on, so it's a lot easier than t- pricking my finger mid race. And so even for your marathon runs, you keep a pen on you as well. Yeah. I'll put it in my waist belt. Yeah. I wear a waist belt with glucose um gels and a couple of cliff bars generally. which which belt do you use like a foot belt or like i use a like foot a belt, belt for um for racing but generally when i'm training i just use i don't even know the brand but just another zip up kind of belt like a fanny pack yeah kind of like that yeah <laughs> i'm thinking like a 1980s bright no, not- fanny pack <laughs> Not quite. I could find one of those, but it might be in like the secondhand vintage stores. Yeah. And so, what is the what's the next race for you? Next, I think I'm running a marathon called Mountains to the Beach in California. If I'm out there in May, and that is also a very popular one to Boston qualify. I've already thankfully qualified for 2019 in sydney yeah um but my boyfriend's also going to run that race and hopefully try to qualify as well so it's slightly downhill all the whole way (laughs) i'd imagine mountains to the beach yes the name says it all so i think that'll be a fun one i think i'll maybe let's just hope some good training and i could pr and use that as a bit of a yeah booster if i can cut a little bit of time off my what is uh, what's your goal pace? Mm, a three fifteen would be nice. So that's in my head. I'd like to do better than that, but I think that's a realistic goal because cutting, like, if you're not a runner, cutting seven minutes off your time doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. Yeah, <laughs> to cut that off. Yeah, so, yeah we'll see. Especially when you already start getting closer to three hours like that. You know, every minute below three hours is just incredible oh, for insane. runners. Yeah. yeah. Here I am, yeah. you know, I haven't, I have a marathon in April. I'm just trying to run four hours. Oh. I would be ecstatic if I could do that, but which marathon it's the rock and roll series. And so it's the Nashville rock and roll. 
Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. It's my first, I've run an ultra before, but I've never run just a marathon. And so I did a half. Straight to an ultra. Yeah, I went straight to an ultra. I've always loved trail running. And so it just made more sense to me that way. And after I got diagnosed, I got a lot more into road running. I kind of had gotten into road running a little bit before my diagnosis. And then after I just kept on the roads and just kind of fell in love with the pacing and the the scheduling around that and signed up for Nashville. But that's exciting. The unforgivable things that I would do to be able to run a 315. That's insane. (laughs) You'll get there. Honestly, yeah. some people are like surprised. They're like, oh, I could never do this. And you're like, no, you, you can get there. It's just like tweaking a couple of things in your training and yeah. it'll work out. So in my notes for the show for you, I have an awesome quote, which I think I'm going to seal and I'm going to, I'm going to put it up over my bed to try and motivate me. But so you said, I enjoy the challenges of running with type one, the freedom it gives me when I'm in the zone and forget about everything apart from moving my feet forward. Talk. Yes. I can complete. I think a lot of us probably can relate to that feeling. I know that right when I got diagnosed, I was kind of struggling with like just the anxiety around not knowing what my body was doing and not knowing anything about myself anymore and kind of feeling lost in that. And running was the only thing that I could do to get away from it. You know, it was like I am lost. I don't know why I have type one. I'm 27 years old. Like who gets diabetes at 27 year old? You know, so. Mm-hmm. Running was the only way I could really escape. And so I can completely relate to that. You can run and forget, at least for me, I could forget that I was a diabetic for 45 minutes to an hour, you know, and then of course, you know, I stop or something happens and I'm snapped back to reality. But talk a little bit about that because I think for people who can't relate, maybe they haven't started running yet and they want to get to that point. I'm telling you that if you start running and you're a type one diabetic, please be careful and do everything you need to do in order to stay healthy in terms of your blood sugars and your insulin regimens. But you can get to that point that Amy's talking about where you can honestly forget about everything other than running. And it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's free therapy. (laughs) Yes, I totally agree with that. I think for me, I agree. Maybe like a whole run. I don't know if I've had many where the whole run or for 45 minutes straight I can forget my diabetes. But I have stages where, and even if you have a perfect run and you're still checking your sugar levels, to me that's kind of achieving that you can getting as close to feeling like a normal person where you don't have to treat a low or treat a high mid-run and it makes you kind of feel gives you like a good feeling but to me when I'm in the zone whether it's in a race or just going out for a run after work or early in the morning and you're just feeling like you're comfortable where you're running the pace you're feeling good your legs are feeling good and that's what you're focusing on you're just focusing on running you're like oh I feel great and you just your mind's either thinking about something else or you're enjoying the scenery or something like that and you're not thinking many times on runs I've been, what's my sugar level? Am I high? Am I low? I need to check. I don't feel that well. Is it related to my diabetes or is it just because I'm having a bad run? And so many runs to me are like focused on that and then I'll have those great runs where it's, I just feel, yeah, and you just feel like, everything's going well so I think yeah I think 
you can get there. And to me, yeah, and it seems like similar for you, but running provides that opportunity just to enjoy the moment and be in the moment rather than always constantly where our brain is 90% of the time thinking about diabetes and our sugar levels. Yeah, like you have to constantly live. I didn't realize this till the other day, but as a diabetic, you have to constantly live in the past and the present and in the future. And like a lot of times, like, you know, psychologists will tell you, well, you can't affect the past, so don't worry about it. But I find myself, I have to look back at the past a lot. I'm like, oh, was that pizza 45 grams per slice or was it 40? Because I'm a little high. Is that why? You know, it's like you're, you're reliving yeah. everything I've eaten for the past 12 hours. And I'm like, this is insane. I've been at 200. Always reflecting. Yeah, I've been at 200 for like an hour and a half now. And it's just not coming down. Definitely the pizza. I'd blame yeah. the pizza. <laughs> Amy, talk about nutrition consulting. I know that you have your own Instagram handle specifically dedicated to that. And kind of what is your mentality on that and your philosophy on nutrition and type 1? So I, yes, have an Instagram account, which is linked to my business, which I run on the side, um, to my full-time job, which is the goal of that is for me to use my experience, my training um, in nutrition and certification to help other people, whether they're type 1 or not type 1, to know how they can, like, fuel their bodies for health, for training, to help get more stable blood sugar levels so, like, I can kind of feel like I can help a range of people and I really have a passion specifically for helping type ones because my experience with nutrition um, and specifically I eat vegan or like a plant-based diet and that's really changed my overall health and my management of my diabetes um, and also I think my athletic performance as well over the past five years since I've transitioned. Yeah. Would you say that your consulting leans more towards vegan or is it open to people that want to eat meat or maybe want to eat meat and eat low carb? Do you kind of sway both ways? Yeah, I do. I have a couple of clients at the moment who still eat meat and dairy and that's fine. I just guide them in the direction of choosing the healthier options there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple of clients I also have who follow like a low carbohydrate or a keto diet, whether that's with animal products or without animal products, you can do it either way. So There's flexible options there, and I think no way of eating unless you're going to McDonald's every day is the wrong way. It's just you've got to find what works for you and make healthy options. Like everyone's going to benefit from eating healthily. It's just there's different levels and people have different ways that it works for them. Where's the best place to get in touch with you if someone wants to get nutrition coaching? So you can pretty much all my um, information is the same. So it's pretty straightforward. AmyMcKinnonNutrition.com is my website. And then my Instagram is the same, Amy McKinnon Nutrition, And I have a Facebook page as well with the same title. So you can reach out on any of those. Awesome. And so th- this takes me into my last uh, section of the show, which I, I call Tempo Talk. And I'm just going to throw some random questions at you and you could take as long or as short as you'd like to answer them. Okay. No pressure. Yeah. Right. Artificial sweetener or real sugar? Real sugar or avoid it if you can. Really? Fruit. If you need what, kind of, what kind of fruit? Bananas, dates, apples, pears, any tropical fruit. Like I love fruit, but 
yeah, if you need sweetener, maple syrup in your coffee. So I've still been avoiding bananas since I got diagnosed. And for people that are oh. like me out there, convince me to eat a banana because I, I haven't because I know that like maybe once or twice after I got diagnosed, I tried it. And it was like, if I didn't have a CGM at the time, but if I did, it would be completely vertical up. Did you wait? You've got to wait 20 to 30 minutes after you inject to eat it. I so will the say at the time, I didn't know system. that. So yeah, <laughs> no one taught, That's no one teaches these most things. people make. I will no wait every day for every meal, 20 to 30 minutes after I give my bolus to eat. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've started to get a, pretty good at that now, but at the time, yeah, I would take insulin and probably just eat yogurt or whatever that had bananas in it. And so I, I'm going to have to get back at it. Um, it's not going to end well if you do that. <laughs> yeah. Favorite pre-race meal. You, you're about to run Boston, right? So Boston is tomorrow morning. What do you eat tonight? You're going to laugh, but oatmeal generally for the night before breakfast for dinner. I, I like it. Yes. And I'm very plain, very consistent oatmeal, cooked in water, maybe with cinnamon and maybe with a banana. And that's it. Done. That's it. And do you read any, do you eat anything the next morning? Um, yeah, I'll get up early and probably have another bowl of oatmeal just because I am comfortable with the reaction that my sugar levels will have with that certain food. Oh yeah. I, so, I find myself eating the same things week after week. Cause I'm like, well, I know what that does. I go to a new restaurant that I've been to before. I get the same thing off the menu. Me too. Being yeah. able to predict your sugar levels for me is like so much more stress-free and oh, just yeah. knowing the way my body reacts, I'm going to make the same decisions if it's going to help me have stable sugar levels. Yeah. I think everyone can relate to that. I've, I've talked to quite a few people now that are like me and they'll eat, I'll eat the same thing for lunch every day because it's nice knowing that I don't have to stress about, you know, how this salad dressing is going to affect my blood sugar. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Favorite food you'd eat a huge portion of if you were not a diabetic? Um, I'm really boring to answering these questions. Um, bananas. I would eat 20 bananas. <laughs> Just like a <laughs> one sitting, like a crazy fruit. One, not, even a like a, not even like a banana pudding. Just you just eat bananas. No, just bananas. Maybe mm. sprinkle something on it. Some need, chia seeds or hemp I need seeds. your problems because my answer is way less healthy than that. I know, and I wish. And people always say to me, aren't you tempted by the birthday cake or aren't you tempted by the donuts? And I'm not, and it's fine. Sometimes like, I'll be like, oh, I want some corn chips. To me, it's like they're to me like kind of my junk food. Yeah. But, yeah, I just don't know. I've lost those cravings over the years, and I'm not complaining to say the least. Favorite diabetic running gear? Specifically for diabetes, I guess um, I like carrying a hydration pack, which is not specifically diabetes, but it allows me to put everything that I need for my diabetes in the pack, and then I can also carry water. Yeah, so I should me, probably I rephrase that question because that, yeah, that perfectly answers what I'm getting at. It's like favorite thing that you use that helps you run as a type 1 diabetic. Yes. Yeah. So even if I go for like a 20 kilometer run or 13 miles, 
which I don't need to take a hydration pack unless it's in the middle of summer and it's a hot day. I still do because it's so convenient. It comfortably sits on your back, doesn't move. I can put in my cliff bars, my gels, my phone, my CGM scanner. I can water everything and it just all sits in there and I can just go on my run and it's so yeah. much more convenient. It's Yeah, at times it's kind of better than a waist belt to me too. It just feels better sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Something you wish everyone knew about type one. I said this uh, at a talk the other day. I said, we make it as type one diabetics. Generally, we make it look easy and look like it's not a chronic disease and we're not constantly thinking about it. And I think for someone who doesn't have diabetes, like we can't just like put it like a pet in a room and it goes to sleep and we don't have to think about it for a few hours. We're constantly thinking about it. Like we wake up in the middle of the night, we're thinking about it. We catch the bus in the morning to go to work. We're thinking about it. like it's never like your brain never truly switches off from thinking about diabetes. Yeah, you can't because every decision is affected. <sighs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes just out of not knowing or it's hard to know if you don't really have it or live really close to someone who does have it to know like what's involved, but it's more work than we make it out to be. I think a lot of the time. Absolutely. Advice for someone who is a diabetic and wants to start running or has been a runner for a while and just got diagnosed with type one. Okay. I think similar to what I said before, I'll bullet point it really quickly. Start slow be consistent. Don't set yourself really like unrealistic high expectations and be really conservative with your insulin and test, test, test. The more you know your sugar levels and how they react while you're running, the easier it is to manage it. Incredible. Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this chat. Hey guys, that wraps up today's interview. Once again, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the show. It's the perfect way to make sure you get fresh episodes delivered straight to your phone every Monday. Also, make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the Diabetic Running Podcast, or visit me at the Diabetic Running If you think you or anyone you know would be a perfect interviewee for the show, make sure to reach out to me on any of those platforms and tell me a little bit about the story you think that we should share. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys again next week. Happy training. Happy training.